Um, it's, a, it's a very good melody. Then the text was written by someone who is an emotional figure in history. It's written by William Cooper. We would look at that name and say it ought to be pronounced Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it in fact was pronounced Cooper. He was uh, a very talented poet. In fact, he is uh, recognized quite apart from his hymn writing as being one of the greatest poets of the 18th century. He was a man who was uh, very fragile mentally, however, spending some time of his life in insane asylums. He uh, was good friends with someone whose name you might recognize, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And John Piper says that John Newton was the healthiest man of the 18th century as far as his spiritual condition was concerned. Newton and Cooper both lived in a town called Olney, and uh, Cooper was part of the Olney Church. John Newton and uh, William Cooper would write a hymn for every Sunday. Those hymns were collected and uh, named the Olney Hymn Book. And uh, I have all the Olney hymns in the, the writings of, uh, of John Newton. But uh, uh, Cooper lived with Newton for several months, maybe several years, and then Newton was called to pastor somewhere else. But that whole story is just very, very rich for me to think about Cooper with his, all of his troubles and Newton with all of his, his confidence in the Lord and how he was able to help Cooper. And then uh, another thing that comes together to make that hymn one of my favorites is that it was the favorite hymn of my favorite preacher, C.H. Spurgeon. And uh, C.H. Spurgeon, in fact, uh, asked that a couple of stanzas of this hymn be inscribed on his tomb. I've never been to his tomb in London, but um, my father and my sister were there. And, of course, I've seen pictures of it and those stanzas there. Since by faith I saw the stream, by flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Those are on the, the tomb of C.H. Spurgeon there in Norwood Cemetery in London. And then one final thing that I'll mention. Uh, as a young boy, this is the first hymn that I remember moving me to tears. But that stands of the dying thief rejoiced to see. It... Uh, I don't think I was even converted, but I just thought about that whole scene and that, that dying man saying to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I remember uh, bringing me to tears. And I did not cry much in those days. I cry all the time now, but uh, in those days I didn't cry much. But I remember being moved to tears by that. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful hymn. I'm so thankful that we are still able to sing it. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1. As most of you know, I uh, have commenced a series on the, the uh, life and teachings of Jesus. It actually is preaching through the Gospels, not one at a time, like I'm not preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, but 
If Matthew is the only person who records a certain event in the life of Christ, then I choose that as my text. And that's the case this morning. Matthew records something uh, that is not recorded in Mark or Luke or John, and that's how that the Lord appeared to Joseph and assured him that it was, uh, it was good for him to take Mary as his wife. Let me read the text, and then I'll go back and start with an introduction and give you the points of the sermon. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I can imagine that being born is a rather uh, frightening experience. Of course, all of us have been born. Man, none of us remember it. But uh, reflecting back on the way that we deal with crises and things that are entirely new, then I can imagine that it would be frightening to be born. All of your life, uh, up to that point, you have lived in a a wet world, in uh, in amniotic fluid, and, uh, and now you come out into the dry outside. All of your life, uh, any light that has, you have seen has been muted through the womb of your mother, but now you come out into the bright, scalding lights of the unfiltered world. Uh, it has been extremely warm. You have lived in a world where it's uh, 98.6 all the time, and then you are born into a world where suddenly you are hit with a rush of cold air. All the sounds that you have heard while you're in the womb were sounds that were muted. But now you come out and, and everything is blaringly loud in comparison to what you have known all of your life up to that point. And, and you, are not, you are not a stupid little blob of protoplasm. So we saw a few weeks ago that John the Baptist, when he was six months old, in the, womb of the ver- in the womb of Elizabeth, leaped for joy when he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I saw something, uh, I think it's on one of these uh, Planet Earth videos that many of you have seen. Uh, maybe you'll recall that there is a kind of a, there's a, kind of a frog that uh, lays her eggs out of the water. It's in a, it's in a tree over, over the water. And uh, then when the, when the little 
tadpoles are ready to come out, when the eggs turn into tadpoles, then they emerge from that egg sac and they plop into the water beneath. That's what usually happens. But there is a wasp that preys upon these egg sacs. And uh, so sometimes when the tadpoles are not quite ready to come out, then this wasp comes and he starts stinging the tadpoles and taking them out of their little egg sacs and eating them. But these tadpoles have been so designed so that even though they're not quite ready to come out, when the wasp comes, they are sufficiently distressed that they come out anyway. And uh, I think, my goodness, if a tadpole has enough sense to be frightened when a wasp comes, what is a human baby capable of, of experiencing? The fear. The fear when, when uh, the atmosphere around has turned hostile. And when mama goes to, uh, to an abortion clinic, I just think that that baby knows that things are not right. Now, I think the corollary truth to that, some of you have given birth to uh, little babies, you have conceived little babies that you did not carry to term. Sometimes, uh, as in the case of a younger sister that I was to have, my mother carried that baby to full term. And then just when it was time for the baby to be born, something, something went wrong, and the baby was born dead. But I believe, I believe that that baby felt love. I believe that, that that little baby that mother maybe you carried for just a few weeks and then had a miscarriage, that when you knew that that baby was in you and you heard the news, that you were so glad. And I think that there were, I think that there were gladness molecules that went all through your body and that the baby said, this is a good place to be. And God in his wisdom saw fit to, uh, to take to take that baby before he or she was born, but I believe that that baby had a happy existence. So I, when I put all that together, I think that being born must be, must be a frightening experience for all of these reasons. But then how comforting it is to hear that voice that you have been hearing for months in the womb, to hear that voice speak to you, the voice of your mother, or to feel the strong hands of someone who loves you, hold you lovingly. One of my daughters is a nurse and worked for uh, months in the uh, labor and delivery. And she has said how important it is when that baby is born to put that that little newborn baby on her, on the baby's mother. That skin-to-skin contact is so important. Now, I'm aware, and I thought of this as I was preparing this introduction, that there are several families in this church who have adopted children. And some of you, some of you uh, received your children very soon. I think there's something in this story for mothers who have biological children and for mothers who have adopted children. I think that there is something in this passage of Scripture for fathers, certainly, who have adopted children because Jesus was Joseph's adopted son. Now, you know the story. We haven't gotten to it yet, but you know the story of how uh, when it was time for Jesus to be born, there was no room for them in the inn. Mary and Joseph 
had traveled to Bethlehem, the city of David, because Joseph belonged to the house and family of David. And this census that was being taken of the Roman world required everyone to return to his ancestral home. And so Joseph and his wife, Mary, went to Bethlehem. And while they were there, it was time for the baby to be born. And uh, I, I don't guess... I don't guess they could have called a midwife. Maybe there was a midwife close. Maybe Joseph went running into the inn and asked, is there anyone here who can deliver a baby? Maybe there was a midwife there. We just don't know. But I don't think it's at all improbable that when Jesus was born, the first hands that received him were the rough, calloused carpenter hands of Joseph. I'd like to preach an entire sermon on Joseph's hands and what they must have meant to Jesus. You know, when, when they were in Jerusalem and, and they were crossing a busy street and little Jesus was just learning how to walk and Mary reached out a finger and, and Jesus took it. And then somebody else reached out a finger and Jesus took that finger and they walked across that busy street together. It was Joseph's finger. It was Joseph, Joseph's rough finger that Jesus took hold of. And as the days went by and uh, little Jesus learned to talk and little Jesus learned to hold the tool and I've no doubt that Jesus would putter around in the carpenter shop behind Joseph learning this and learning that. And I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but with the kind of work that Jesus almost certainly did. He was probably a strong man with big hands. If you have pictures of your farming ancestors who worked with mules and oxen and and with hand tools, look at their hands. Look at how big they are. That, That kind of work makes a man's hands and makes a woman's hands get big and rough. And those are the kind of hands that surely Joseph had and probably our Lord himself had because he almost certainly worked hard in the carpenter's shop. It was no accident that Joseph was married to to, to Mary. No accident. Of course, at the time that this story takes place, they were not yet married, and so I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up and first of all see that this story tells us, it doesn't tell us, but it's implied that there was a good girl with a suspicious story. That's my first point. This story tells us, or at least implies, that there was a good girl with a suspicious story. And then this passage of Scripture does tell us that there was a good man facing a hard decision. And then the third thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that God steps in. And the fourth thing we'll see is that Joseph steps up. But first of all, strongly implied in this passage of Scripture is that there was a good girl with a suspicious story. And of course, that good girl is Mary. And several weeks ago, when we read about the angel's visit to Mary, we saw that she was a pure girl. She was a virgin. We saw that she was a pious girl because she said in response to this task that the Lord had given her, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. But what the Bible does not explicitly relate is something that required a brave girl. 
And that is that sooner or later, she had to tell what had happened to her. Now, I just don't know when that happened. It could have been right away. <clears throat> she may have gone to Joseph and said, Joseph, I have been visited by the Lord, and the Lord has said that I'm going to have a baby. But I assure you, Joseph, I have not been unfaithful to our engagement. Now, to call it an engagement is just a little bit misleading because our engagements are the sort of things that you can, without dishonor, break. And uh, so, uh, it, it doesn't mean that you're, you have done a shameful thing if in the course of your engagement you discover this was a bad decision. Thank God He showed it to us before we got married. You break off the engagement. But that's not the way engagements were at this time. <clears throat> at this time, engagements were more of a legal binding, legally binding agreement. And in fact, even in this passage, uh, uh, I think Joseph, before their, well, verse, verse 18 says, 19, and her husband Joseph, well, they weren't married yet. They were just engaged, but still he is described as her husband. So it was a really serious thing to get uh, betrothed in those days. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. It may be that it was a face-to-face conversation. It's also possible that it was done through intermediaries. So if you have seen Fiddler on the Roof, then you know that in the Jewish community, sometimes arrange, uh, marriages were arranged, that there was a matchmaker, and sometimes the communication between the, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be were communicated through adult intermediaries. Joseph was almost certainly an older man, but he had entered into a contract with Mary's family, and he was to be married to Mary, but... Uh, But then Mary comes to him with this story, which I have charitably described as suspicious. Because who in the history of the world would believe such a story? I'm going to have a baby, but I have never been intimate with a man. And so I would say that however that conversation took place, whether it was face-to-face or whether it was through intermediaries, it took a brave girl to say what the truth was. I mean, I've considered the alternative. She may have just gone away for a while and had the baby and no one would have known. I, I, I don't know. You know. There are instances of that having happened in history, of course. Did Mary tell Joseph and Joseph responded badly? Is that why she went to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea and stayed there for three months? Was she gone for three months and then came home? And just beginning to show a little bit of a baby bump. And she knows I have to tell people. But what, whatever the case was, sooner or later, Mary told the truth. And she told the truth, and Joseph heard the true story, but he just didn't believe it. We know that he didn't believe it because of what we read in this text. And so let's move on and see the second point. We've seen a good girl with a suspicious story, but now from this text we see a good man facing a hard decision. Now he was a good man, and you can tell that he was a good man by several things that are said about him here. It says, first of all, in verse 19, that he was a just man, and so a 
A man who is just is willing to consider the circumstances. He's willing to consider extenuating circumstances. He's not hasty to jump to conclusion. He's a just man. Not only that, but Joseph is also a gentle man. He was a poor man, so he wasn't a a gentleman in, in the way that it would be thought about in 18th or 19th century England, but he was a gentleman because the Bible here says that he was unwilling to put her to shame. Now, when a girl got uh, pregnant out of wedlock and it wasn't her betrothed who got her pregnant, then the law allowed that the contract could be broken. Some people think that is what uh, is talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew chapter 19, that it's just the the breaking of a betrothal, and that may be the case. But anyway, it was certainly permissible if if there was uh, moral uncleanness, if there was a sexual impropriety that was discovered, uh, and and it would be obvious in the case of the young lady then divorce was permitted, and it could have been a very public affair. But Joseph was going to do this as quietly as possible. He, he cared for Mary. He was not willing to, to make an example of her and parade her through the streets as an unfaithful woman. Instead, like a gentle man, he wanted to do this quietly, but it had to be done. Not only was he a just man and a gentle man, but he also was a considerate man. He wasn't going to rush into this. Look at what it says next there in verse 19. Uh, He resolved to divorce her quietly, but as he considered these things. So he doesn't rush to, to initiate the divorce proceedings. He's considering it. Mary is a trustworthy girl. Every evidence is that she is a, a very pious girl. I, I keep saying girl because Joseph is probably 20 years or more older than Mary. And he thinks that Mary is a, 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 good, a good girl, a pious girl. And I don't think that she would make up a story like this, but I just cannot believe that she's going to have a baby in, in some way that has never happened in the history of the world. But he's thinking about it. He's considering it. You know, not everything that needs to be done needs to be done right now. That might be the most important thing that you hear out of this sermon. Not everything that needs to be said needs to be said right now. Sometimes you need to sit on that email for a day or two before you send it. Sometimes you need to think for a day or two before you make that Phone call when you're mad as a hornet. I have found through the years that I'm very rarely regretful for what I did not say. There are times. But most of the time, I'm filled with regret and sent to repentance because of what I did say. Consider it. Think about it. And so Joseph was a a considerate man. And while he was considering these things, then God stepped in. That's my third point. Let's see how God stepped in. As he considered these things, verse 20 says, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying. (coughs) Now, before we get to the content of the dream, let's deal briefly with does God talk in dreams? And uh, this, this belongs, now this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but this is an Old Testament situation. And uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, in times past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, and sometimes that was through dreams. So Joseph had dreams that were prophetic of what was going to happen in the future. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Pharaoh had dreams. So we read uh, of several times in the Bible where God reveals his will through dreams. And it sounds like I'm getting ready to say, but God never does that anymore. But that's not what I'm getting ready to say. I'm getting ready to say that God, I think, still can and still sometimes does communicate truth in dreams. But listen carefully to the next two things that I'll say. If God is speaking to you in a dream, he'll help you to remember it, and I think he'll help you to know what it means. So it's not going to be some kind of mysterious thing, although, you know, that was the case with Nebuchadnezzar and with Pharaoh. But I think that, I, I think that in most cases, if God wants you to know something and he's communicating it to you in a dream, that he's going to let you remember the dream and know what it means. But here's what is most important of all. It will never contradict what the Bible says. So God is never in a dream going to reveal something to you that is contrary to what the scriptures say. Now some people would say that I'm treading on thin ice and walking on a dangerous pathway when I say that I think that God still does reveal reveal things in dreams. Uh, But I, I, I think that you should pray as I pray before I go to bed, Lord bless me with good thoughts and dreams. Uh, Here I'm entering into a time of the day when I don't have direct control over what my mind does. And so uh, you guide me. You you teach me what I need to know. And I I can tell you several instances where things that were big problems at night are not big problems in the morning. And it's not just because I got a good night of rest. I think that there are times when things, uh, things have been made clear to me in the night. I know that Mark Mitchell's Sunday school class is studying uh, the book Mere Calvinism, and when I had written the first several chapters of that book, I thought that I was done. I submitted all the manuscript to the publisher and the editor on time, and and then uh, a few days later, the editor contacted me and said, we would like for you to write a concluding chapter. And, uh, And she called me like on Wednesday, and said, we'd like to have it on Friday. And, uh, and I, I just, I'll try. Uh, but I took it before the Lord and I said, Lord, I think I've said everything in that book that, uh, that needs to be said. I just, I don't know what else to say. And so if you want me to write another chapter, then I just leave it in your hands. I'm going to bed. You know, the Psalm 121 says, He who watcheth over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I just figure there's no point in both of us staying up. <clears throat> and so 
if the Lord is going to stay up and watch over us, then I'm going to go ahead and go to sleep. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and before I got out of bed, I had the idea for the final chapter of that book. And just sat down at the computer, and uh, I almost felt like Mozart, just writing things without correcting anything that I had written. I just wrote out that chapter. Now, I did go back and try to make it a little better. But anyway, I, I consider that to be one of several instances that I could point to in my life where I go to bed puzzled, perplexed, vexed, wake up the next morning and the answer is there. Where did that come from? I think it came from God. Uh, but, uh, so, but all this is safeguarded if you just say the primary way that God reveals His will is in the Holy Bible. And if He needs to nudge you in a certain direction, He can send a dream, but it will never be contrary to what the Bible says. And so if you think that God has revealed something to you in a dream, I recommend that you submit it to the scrutiny of an older, mature, Bible-believing Christian who knows the Bible thoroughly before you conclude that it is God's will. So that's, uh, I think, an important little side about dreams. And God sends an angel who appears to Joseph in a dream And let's see what God reveals. So the Lord sends this angel and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel confirms the story that has caused Joseph such distress. He confirms that this story is true. She will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I hope that Joseph was familiar enough with the book of Isaiah that this scripture came to mind. It's possible that we have just a part of the dream here. And uh, in the ESV, the quotes are closed at the end of verse 21, but it very very well may be that verse 22 is included in uh, in what the angel said to Joseph. And if that is the case, then in this revelation, the angel revealed two things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's two names. The first name is Jesus, and the second name is Emmanuel. And both of these are names that are full of significance. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save, he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is, well, we say Jesus. In, uh, in Greek, it would be something like Jesus. No J sound in Greek, but something like Jesus. And uh, perhaps Aramaic speakers would have called it Yeshua. And uh, with Yeshua, perhaps you can hear the way we pronounce Joshua. But again, in Hebrew, there's no J sound, and so it's kind of a Y sound. So if you don't say Joshua, then you've got Yahshua or Yeshua. So uh, Yeshua, a very venerable Old Testament name, someone who took over after the law and led the people of God into the promised land. Jesus is named after Yeshua. He comes 
after the law, and he leads his people into the promised land. (coughs) But the name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, are all, they all mean the same thing. They mean Yahweh saves. They mean Savior. And so Jesus is given a name that prophesies what he's going to do. You're going to to name this boy Savior. And then Joseph is not left to wonder, saved from what? Save whom? Because the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice that this is one of many places in the Bible where the work of Christ is identified as being effective for a particular group. Uh, this is one of many verses of Scripture that are this way. And, uh, that the work of Christ is going to be effective for a particular group. It will be effective. Not, we're going to name him Jesus in the hopes that he will save his people from their sins. We're going to name him Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. He will not merely make salvation possible for them, he will save them. He will save his people. He will save them from their sins. I maintain that the Bible teaches that the work of Christ was not an attempt to make salvation possible for everyone who has ever lived. It is the successful accomplishment of the salvation for his elect. He shall save his people from their sins. And this is one of several verses of Scripture. Others would be Christ Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The good shepherd loves the sheep. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And so I believe that this is a very important passage of Scripture. Jesus is named Jesus because... He is going to successfully accomplish the task that God the Father has sent him to accomplish. He will save his people from their sins. And then there's this second name that uh, is revealed, perhaps through the book of Isaiah, perhaps from the dream uh, when the angel speaks. He will be called Emmanuel, and then the translation is given to us here, which means God with us. And so God in the person of Jesus Christ, has changed the way that he relates to his people on earth. It's not coming and going, but through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he is with us. And so, while Joseph is contemplating a hard decision, and let me say that it would have been, it would have not been mean-spirited of Joseph to put away Mary if he suspected that she was impure sexually. I think that there's a modern uh, take on that. They say, oh, that would be pretty crusty if a man finds out that a girl's not a virgin and he breaks off the engagement. That is, that is a biblical perspective on things. And uh, I know that today the idea is that single people are just going to be promiscuous and there's no avoiding it. Uh, but if you have got your mind made up that you're going to preserve yourself for marriage 
and not have intimate relations until you are married, you have every right to expect that of the person that you get married to. And so it is not at all being mean-spirited or harsh. And, and uh, conversations of that matter ought to, uh, ought to come up pretty early in a relationship. So when things start getting serious, then if you have been, uh, if you have been sexually active, you need to let the person know that you're dating. Just need to know that there's some things in my past that I'm not proud of. You know, maybe happened before I was a Christian or I slipped up after I was a Christian. But you need to know that this is true about me. Because that would be a bad thing to discover on the honeymoon. And uh, so don't, don't cave in to these ideas of just because everybody in the world is uh, acting like premarital sex is normal that therefore it is normal. It's not normal. It's wrong. I urge those of you who are young people, take safeguards that you remain a virgin until the day that you get married. So Joseph was a just man. He would not have been cruel to have carried through with the divorce, but now God steps in and says, no, the story that Mary's telling you is true. And so finally, we see that Joseph steps up. It says in verse 24, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And they got married. They got married right away. Now, notice what it says next. But knew her not. Sometimes the Bible delicately phrases things. This means that he did not have sex with her. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, sometimes uh, young people will ask, well, if, if I'm having sex with my girlfriend, are we married in the eyes of God? And the answer to that is no. Intimate relations ought to be a normal, regular part of a healthy marriage. But having intimate relations with someone does not mean that she's your wife, does not mean that he's your husband. And sometimes as, as engaged couples get closer to the engagement, they'll, they'll capitulate to a lie like that. Well, we're almost married, so it's okay for us to go ahead and be intimate. I beg you, don't do it. Remain, remain pure, remain faithful until you're married in the eyes of God. And married in the eyes of God is not just a matter of getting naked with someone. It is a matter of a covenant taken in his presence. And so when Joseph and Mary took this covenant in God's presence, they were married. They were husband and wife. But Joseph and Mary never had intimate relations until after Jesus was born. And uh, the only reason that I can think of for that is so that it would be abundantly clear that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus had been conceived and born of a virgin. And so Joseph, uh, Joseph stepped up. Joseph did a hard thing. He believed a story that everybody else would find unbelievable. And it's possible that Joseph never married 
Mary until she was three or four months along. And then baby Jesus comes along four months later. And then, you know, people are, oh, we know what happened there. But Joseph was a good man. He was a godly man. And he stepped up. And he, he became the primary, here I'm assuming, he became the primary male influence on Jesus Christ. I don't know who else it would have been. And it may not have lasted long. The last time that we read about Joseph is when Jesus was 12 years old and they had gone up to the temple. After Jesus begins his ministry, we don't see any mention made of Joseph after that. At the cross, there was just Mary. Uh, When Mary and the other siblings of Jesus came to uh, take possession of him when they thought that he was mad, there's only Mary, not Joseph with him. No mention is made of Joseph. That kind of confirms the idea that Joseph may have been 20 or 30 years older than Mary and died uh, before Jesus reached adulthood. We don't know. The Bible just doesn't say. But at least for 12 years, and it's hard not to say that those are the 12 most important years, the primary influence, male influence in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ was this man Joseph. So I didn't preach a whole sermon on Joseph's hands, but it's hard for us to imagine a a guiding force more potent than Joseph the stepfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a godly man. He was a just man. He was a gentle man. He is a man worthy of our admiration. He stepped up and obeyed the Lord, and he took the responsibility for feeding and taking care of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are any number of things in this sermon that could awaken someone who's out of the kingdom of God. Um, There has not been an explicit explanation of how it is that Jesus takes away the sins of his people. Most of you know that story. But Jesus saved his people from their sins when he became a substitute for us. He bore our sins. He he died not to make the salvation of all men possible, but to make the salvation of his elect certain. And the question may arise in your mind, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? And the answer is, you won't know until you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you may know that God has loved you with an everlasting love. You might ask, well, how do I know that Jesus will receive me? Because Jesus is a a Savior who keeps His Word. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive out. And so come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He bids you to come. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The Bible declares clearly, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Come, believing the promises. God doesn't have to appear to you in a dream to confirm that this is true. There's a house full of people here who can confirm that this is true. There's, there's 2,000 years of history to confirm that this is true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. He is Jesus. 
He shall save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you receive him, then Jesus tells us ever so clearly that he who receives me, my father and I will come and we will make our home with him. May it be so in your life today. May the Lord issue his effectual call and draw you to the Lord Jesus Christ in simple faith, receiving him as your Lord and Savior. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a...